Um, I'm going to read this morning's passage, and then we're just going to jump, jump right in. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul is writing to young Timothy. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, I have an agenda this morning in my message, in case you're wondering, and I just want to get that out of the way right now, to tell you what my hope is, my prayer has been in preparing for this message, and it is a very simple one. My prayer has been that the Lord would use this message, our time together this morning, to stir in all of us a hunger to read Scripture. That's it is that the Lord would use this time to get to, together today to inspire us to read the Bible. That's my prayer. Now, in this Bible, we learn of a God who does exceedingly more than we ask or think, and so He may have other things in mind for us, but as I have been praying for this time together, that has been my prayer. May His will be done. But I've prayed that this time together would cause us, would lead us, to spend time with the words printed on the page in Scripture. I just got back from a, um, uh, about 10 days in Israel, a trip to Israel, um, which was amazing. Have any of you ever been to Israel? Some of you I know have. Anybody? When you go to Israel, um, you can go for a number of reasons. One reason sometimes people go is, is maybe to, to feel an experiential, spiritual feeling of being near to where Jesus was. For me, I, I struggle with that just because the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of the people of God, so you don't have to go around the world to draw nearer to God. At the same time, there's something profound about being in this geographical place where everything unfolded, um, where, where the story of Scripture happened. Uh, and to see the, the proximity of things, how everything's so close together. You just, you won't read the Bible the same once you've been there. And so if you ever have the opportunity to do that, I, I highly recommend it. For me, going on this last trip was a kind of a homecoming. And the reason it was kind of a homecoming is because when I was in college, half my life ago, I lived there. I lived in Jerusalem as a student. I, I did a semester abroad, and I lived at the school that was just comprised of students from all around the world who had come to do a semester of study in Jerusalem. So imagine it, a bunch of 19 to 22-year-olds on the other side of the world with the world at our fingertips. It was an amazing experience. And one of the things that was an, a feature of, of that school was there was a class everybody took. It was kind of a field trip class where we would go uh, we'd, these long weekends and we would go explore the region of Galilee or the Negev or the, the, the Dead Sea or things like this. And so you would take these trips. And what it meant was in order to accommodate those trips that everybody had to take, there were no classes on Fridays. So every weekend was a three-day weekend. And when you didn't have a field trip, when you didn't have a field trip for class, you had a three-day weekend to just go do whatever you wanted and to explore the Holy Land. And so there was a group of us that would use those three-day weekends and we'd just pick a place on the map and go. 
and just hang out there and, and just kind of be locals, you know? And uh, it was great. One day we picked, we decided we're going to go to the Mediterranean Sea and we are going to sleep on the beach. We're going to pack our food and our water and sleeping bags and we're going to take a taxi and have them drop us off in this town. Well, the town we picked, we didn't realize, wasn't actually a town, it was a ruin, meaning there was nothing there. So by the time the taxi dropped us off, he kind of gave us a look like, are you sure? And we were like, eh, we're 21, yeah, we're sure. And so we got out, and we, it was just us, just six of us on this deserted beach in a Persian port city ruin called Dor. And we, it was amazing, it was just amazing. We, we, I mean, you can just see us there, kind of just laying in our sleeping bags, looking up at the stars, hearing the Mediterranean Sea, just lapping up on the shore, maybe 20 feet away from us, little tiny crabs crawling all over everybody. And it was electrifying, and it was one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life, short of being a parent and getting married. Um, and, uh, and the morning we woke up, we all just decided, let's, let's go for a run on the beach, and I'm not talking like lace up your sneakers and go for a run. I'm talking about barefoot where you're kind of half in the water, half out of the water, you know, like, like you would do. And I'm running and I catch, maybe a half a mile into the run, um, I catch something shining in the sand out of the corner of my eye. And I, I'm kind of drawn to it and I stop to see what this thing is. And what I saw lying in the sand on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, half in the water, half out of the water, I just couldn't believe. And I brought it to show you what it is that I found. This is what I found laying on the beach. <clears throat> this is an actual message in a bottle. Huh? <laughs> That's cool, right? That's cool. I found a message in a bottle, a real, genuine message in a bottle. Three simple parts, a glass bottle, a rolled up piece of paper and a cork just right there in the middle of nowhere and I picked it up and I was showing it to my friends and we started talking about what what does this mean what what could this be about and we started to think about it and talk about it and we realized because of where we were it had to have come from the sea it had to have come from something out in the sea it couldn't have come from anywhere near us <coughs> and so we wondered, like, what would this be? Maybe it was from a cruise ship, or maybe it was from some kind of fishing boat, or perhaps the vessel that this came from was now lying on the ocean floor, and maybe the person who wrote the message that's in it is lying there with it. Or maybe, in a last-ditch effort, they were able to get on a little, little uh, lifeboat and, and run aground on one of those little tiny islands in the Mediterranean Sea, and they're curled up in a ball, and they're cold, and they're wet, and they're hungry, and they're just hoping that somebody will find their last desperate plea for help and read it, and maybe come rescue them, or at least let somebody know that they loved them. Maybe it wasn't any of that at all. Maybe it was a a declaration of devotion and love between two lovers. It was just solemnized. What's the word? It was written down on a piece of paper and thrown into the water as a way of symbolizing what that was. Maybe it was part of an epic adventure imagined by children who were bored at the dinner table of their parents' anniversary cruise. You know? Or maybe it was something completely altogether different. Who knows? Well, you'd have to open the bottle to read the message to find out, wouldn't you? But the possibilities are limitless. 
So we passed the bottle around at our camp, but we didn't open it at our camp. And the reason we didn't open it is because we didn't have something. What we didn't have was one of these. We didn't have a bottle opener. I'm done with show and tell. We didn't have a bottle opener. And because we didn't have a bottle opener, I decided I'm going to wait until we get back to the school and we'll open it there. I'll find a bottle opener in the kitchen. Somebody said, well, you could just shove the cork inside the bottle and we could get it out that way. And I thought, yeah, but that kind of ruins the thing. You know, it's like, then, then it's just no good anymore. I'm, it's, it's a message in a bottle right now. I don't want to keep it that way. And so we waited to get back and I made a half-hearted attempt to find a bottle opener, but I got distracted and got busy doing other things. Didn't find a bottle opener. It sat on my shelf. Somebody had a, a wood screw that they found, and they said, you know, you could screw this in there, and then we could pull it out that way. And you can tell by the top of it that I tried that, and it started to chew up the cork a little bit more than I was comfortable with. And I said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So the truth is, I waited until I got back to the States three months later to open this bottle. How do you like me now? I just, you know, I thought whatever's in there, it can wait. And I just didn't, I didn't do it. And I believe that this describes many Christian people's relationship with the Bible, that we have Bibles, right? We have sometimes multiple copies of the Bible, but we don't open them and we don't engage with what's written inside of them. We each have our reasons for this. And those reasons are our own. But we are not, by and large, as a generation, I know this doesn't apply to many of you, but it applies to a lot of us. We are not, as Paul wrote in the passage we just read, people who are, quote, acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, I say this having been a pastor for over 15 years. And as being a pastor for over 15 years, one of the things that I've seen is that we are a biblically illiterate generation. As a preacher, I cannot assume any biblical knowledge when I put together a sermon anymore. I can't. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean it very, very much on the face of it. What I mean is this. I mean that a great many people who claim to embrace Christianity have not read the book upon which their faith is based. That's what I mean. We own the book that Paul said to Timothy is breathed out by God, that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We even have opinions about it. But we don't really know what it says. And to that, my question is, does that make any sense at all? Today, I want to make a case for why we should open the bottle and read the message. And not just leave it on the shelf for whatever reason. And so the way we're going to do this, a couple of just general thoughts if you're wanting to know kind of the flow of this. So we're going to talk about the authoritative voice and how everybody has an authoritative voice that they yield to. It's the voice that breaks the tie. We're going to talk about why Scripture should be that authoritative voice for the believer in Christ. We're going to talk about how to respond to even the call to yield to an authoritative voice, what it means to do this in a way that's humble and not flippant. And then we're going to get back to Jesus and what this book is really about anyway. And then I'll say a couple of important words about this bottle you're also curious about right now.
The idea of embracing Scripture, Paul said, as Paul describes it in this passage, the idea of embracing Scripture as God-breathed and profitable and useful and without error and something that is reliable has an old theological name. It's a Latin term, sola scriptura. Have you ever heard of that? It's part of the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, belongs in that category. But what sola scriptura means is that Christians live by Scripture alone. Specifically, that this is the authoritative voice that we yield to. It means that Christians view Scripture, and what I mean by Scripture, let me be clear about this, is the Old Testament which Jesus said He did not come to abolish but to fulfill, and the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus which is preserved and taught by His apostles through the writings of the New Testament, that's what I mean by Scripture, is the authoritative voice and rule for life and faith. For the believer. In other words, Christians are people who embrace and yield to the authority of Scripture above all other authoritative voices. That's just a part of being a Christian. That's not a new thing for Christianity. It's the way it's always been, that that's what Orthodox Christianity believes about Scripture. Now, I know by saying that, I lose some of you. And I lose some of you because if I say, live under the authority of Scripture right on the tip of your tongue is nobody tells me what to do, right? I've, I've got a little bit of that in me. Here's the thing. The question is not whether you obey an authoritative voice or not. You do. And if you say nobody tells me what to do, you're kind of showing your hand. You're revealing that you actually do live under an authoritative voice. It's just your own. And that's the authoritative voice that nothing can trump, which becomes problematic, which I'll get to in just a second. But the question is not if we follow an authoritative voice. The question is which one, because we all have one that we live by, the moral compass we follow, the thing that tells us how to value people, places, and things. Each of us follows an authoritative voice, even if that voice is just our own. And so the question is not if we will yield, to the, yield our lives to an authoritative voice, it's which authoritative voice do we yield to, and have you ever even stopped to consider, yeah, which authoritative voice, which, who's driving the car? Who's governing my life? What's the authority in my life? And then the question beneath that is, have you ever evaluated what qualifies that voice to carry such weight and importance in this one life that you've been given? If the main authority we yield to is our own, nobody tells me what to do, here's the problem. We are following a voice whose wisdom and insight into this life is no greater than what we already know. And if you're anything like me, that's not going to end well. Why should the authoritative voice that we listen to be Scripture, be this book, this old book, by the way, there have, of course, been seasons in the life of Christianity where Scripture has played second fiddle to the voices of the age. We are definitely in one of those seasons right now. It costs you a little something to say you believe the Bible, to admit that publicly. It hasn't always been that way, but it, but it is right now. That if you plant your feet in something that has been an orthodox belief of Christianity for the last 2,000 years, people will wonder, what is wrong with you? Get with the rest of us. 
What is in, why would we do this? Historically, Christians have been people of the book. As a pastor, I don't see a lot of evidence to suggest we are in some golden age of love and reverence for the Bible. I just don't see that. One of the huge contributing factors to that is because the people who claim to belong to the people of the book don't read the book. One of the reasons I love my work with She Reads Truth and He Reads Truth is we have a very simple mission to help people be in the Word of God every day, to read, to read the Bible. It's so important because why? Here in this book, we have a collection of writings that have been preserved down through the ages, living words that have undisputably transformed the lives of countless people around the globe, spurring them on to love and good deeds, many of them even to laying down their lives for what's written in these pages, this message in a bottle that's washed up on our fair shores, and many of us just yawn with indifference at it and leave it closed. Now, at this point, I want to say, if you're starting to feel like the preacher is trying to guilt you into reading the Bible, I apologize for that, because it would be a bad reason for you to go to the pages of scriptures because somebody guilted you into it. You most certainly will not find what there is to be found there if you're reading from the, po- from the posture of guilt. Why should we read it? Why should we yield to this as our authoritative voice? Why make such a big deal out of it? Well, the reason we should is because the Bible itself presents itself as the Word of God which is his revelation to us about how we live in relationship with him and how we're saved. Scripture presents itself in a particular way that, that sola scriptura, living by scripture alone, is built upon, and it's this. Scripture presents itself as being God's complete, sufficient, inspired, reliable, authoritative, normative revelation of himself to we who are made in his image. It's a profoundly relational book. I'll read it again. God's complete, sufficient, inspired, reliable, authoritative, normative revelation of himself to we who are made in his image. I'm going to unpack those things very quickly. The first is this is a perfectly complete book for what it's intended for. It's not perfectly complete in that it says everything about everything. You can't find in the Bible how to build the footings for a skyscraper in New York City. It's not intended for that purpose. But what it is, is it's a book about how we live in relationship with God. And in that sense, it is perfectly complete for salvation. As a whole, as the revelation by which we find our identity and understand redemption, Scripture has no missing pieces. What we need to know about who we are and how we relate to God and how He relates to us is in here. It is, as Paul said in verse 15, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's able to do that. Wayne Grudem, a Bible scholar, said this. He said, Scripture contained all the words God intended His people to have at each stage in His redemptive history. Now it contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. So it's perfectly complete for salvation. It is also sufficient for clear interpretation, meaning Scripture interprets Scripture. 
For the Bible to be useful for the things Paul describes, training, reproof, correction, teaching, it has to be what? It has to be comprehensible, right? It has to be something we can read and say, oh, I understand what I'm, what I'm looking at here. I understand what I'm reading. Now, the Holy Spirit aids in that, but at the same time, what I'm trying to say is this book is not some ancient home that fell out of outer space that is full of runes about an alien civilization, and we're just trying to piece together what in the world is this, what's even going on here? This is meant to be understood. Scripture is not given to confuse. It is God's revelation of Himself to us, but it also calls for our interaction with it to take and to read. It's inspired by God. Scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed. Charles Hodge described the inspired nature of Scripture in this way. He said, an influence of the Holy Spirit is on the minds of certain select men which renders them organs of God for the infallible communication of His mind and will. They were in such sense organs of God that they said what God said. Ultimately, God is the author of this book. He's the author and the one who preserves what's in this book down through time. Now, before moving on to the next one, we live in an age of skepticism, and I know that what I just said is a tall order, and that's okay. It's a tall order. But interrogating the validity of any authoritative voice that we listen to is a tall order. And this, by the way, still stands. It's reliable. If it's inspired by God, if God is the ultimate author of this book, then it is trustworthy. It won't fail us. It won't lead us astray. Scripture is inspired by God, and because it is, we can trust it. Paul says it is given so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You can trust this. It's useful for training in righteousness. We can trust that because Scripture is God's complete, sufficient, Spirit-inspired revelation of Himself, we can trust that it is without error. It will not fail us. Yeah, the people who wrote it down were people who had flaws. But the one who has preserved it down through time and inspired the words that they wrote, he is not flawed. And therefore, Scripture is unable to err. This is part of the doctrine of sola scriptura. And last, it is authoritative and normative. If Scripture is the complete, sufficient revelation for how a person is to live in this world in relationship with their Creator, if it's inspired by God Himself, preserved for us by the Holy Spirit, and is without error, then there is no other book, there's no other moral code that can equal this one's authority. And that makes this the believer's moral, ethical, and theological standard to live by. That's the doctrine of having a high view of Scripture, of believing that Scripture is true. That's what it means to live by Scripture, that this is God's complete, sufficient, inspired, reliable, authoritative, normative revelation of Himself to we who are made in His image. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to claims Paul makes about the Bible? Because there's some pretty steep claims. I know that we live in an age of skepticism, and you may be thinking right now, people are really naive to hold such a view of the Bible. And to that I would say, you can say that, 
But when you start looking at the list of people, notable people in history who that's what they believed and that's what they held to, one thing you can't do is say they just weren't really intellectually on their game. Because many people who believe in the authority and the inspiration of Scripture, some of the brightest minds this world has ever known. You may be thinking it's, it's naive to hold such a view, but before wrapping up this discussion about why we should open the Bible and read the message, why we should open the bottle, I want to acknowledge that I just said a lot of things about Scripture that will or at least should raise big, complex questions. It should. Questions you can't answer yet in the moment that you ask them. And to that I would say, ask your questions anyway. They're not going to topple Christianity. They haven't yet, and they won't. Ask your questions. In fact, a religion that says don't ask questions is a cult. One sign that we're growing in any field of study, including Christianity, is that the more we learn, the more questions we have. If I say, is it this or this, and somebody says, it's this, and I open that door, what's behind that door is a whole bunch of stuff I didn't even know was there. And it raises all these new questions. So we take today's topic as an example. When I say Christians embrace Scripture as given in the Old and New Testament, we should wonder things like, well, well, who determined what's in the Old and New Testament? How'd that even come together? How do people decide which books should be included? Why would anyone today give authority to words written thousands of years ago. Now, people typically ask these questions in one of two ways. They ask because they want to know the answer, or they ask, like Pontius Pilate saying, what is truth, as a way of kind of shutting down the conversation and saying, I've asked the question that cannot be answered, and now I'm going to walk away satisfied in my ability to topple this major world religion with my quick thinking. You can laugh at that. The flippant person says this, it is ridiculous to think that a religious book written so long ago could have any relevance today. And there are a lot of ways you could respond to that. One way that I would respond to that is by saying this, by asking the question, is it a sign of wisdom or foolishness to say that if something doesn't make sense to you, then it must not make sense at all? Is that a sign of wisdom or foolishness? Or let me say it another way. Are you prepared to say that because you have raised a question that you can't answer, the fault lies with the subject of the question? Are you prepared to say that the millions of people who have embraced this book as their rule for life and faith from every continent for centuries have just failed to see what is so plain to you. See, the humble person is willing to stop and consider a few things. First, they're willing to own that their question comes from a lack of knowledge and understanding, not an abundance of knowledge and understanding. The question is a real question. They're willing to admit, I don't see everything that there is to see. That's why the question is there. I don't know. Second, they accept that the knowledge they seek 
might actually require some work, like some study, some reading, some research. And third, and this one is really important, is that a humble person recognizes that they are probably not the first person asking their question. I'm probably not the first person to ask this. And so they're willing and eager to look over the shoulders of others, countless others, who have come before them, many of whom have given, their, given years of their academic, vocational, professional lives to studying the very same question the humble person is just beginning to entertain. See, humility wants to learn from others. Flippancy doesn't, because flippancy is the behavior of the cult of cynicism, and the cult of cynicism doesn't ask questions. It just assumes it already knows everything there is to know. Listen, the odds against any of us asking an original question, one that has never been asked before, those odds are greater than winning the lottery or finding a message in a bottle on a deserted beach. If you come up with a thought that seems to topple Christianity with ease and leaves it in your mind shot full of obvious contradictions and flaws, may I suggest that you slow down and take a deeper look. Lean into your question. Why? Because if that question or others like it could so plainly undermine the Christian faith to the point that you feel like I have actually exposed Christianity as a flawed, fraudulent, empty religion, don't you think somebody else would have done that by now? The flippant person, of course, can't be bothered with this. But the humble person will take a look at Christianity and say, if this faith of the people of the book is still standing, after all this time, this faith that has cost so many so much, then my questions must have reasonable answers. As G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting It's been found difficult and left untried. I want to land with Jesus. This Bible, this book, is the story of God's love for us. That's what it is. It's the story of his love for his people. In these pages, we read about people who have tried, how people have tried and failed to live up to impossible standards. It's the story of strivers manipulators, controllers, shortcutters, people just like us, encountering a God like no other. These pages tell of people who made destructive choices that burn their worlds to the ground and how Jesus dignified their lives by touching them and letting them touch him. In these pages, life rises from the ruin. Resurrection happens. Prodigals come home and are met with a loving father's embrace. Sinners are protected from the condemning insults of the self-righteous. The poor are fed and they're clothed. Downcast chins are lifted to see the kindness in the eyes of their Savior. That's what's in this book. Listen, the people of God that are in this book and in this room, we're a beautiful mess, but this book tells us you're a beautiful mess, but you're beautiful. You're beautiful. We fail each other, but we serve each other. We weep together and we celebrate. When one suffers, others come around. When one rejoices, the others raise a glass. Lechaim. 
The Bible is not a magic book. It's better than that. It's a living book. And if we are to understand it as it presents itself, we see it is not simply the story of the characters contained in its covers, but it is our story too. This book, this message in a bottle, is a grand adventure greater than a child's imagination, and we're in the fellowship. It's a love story about a lover who will pursue his beloved across the cosmos and down through time, and you are the beloved. You're the object of his affection. This book is a desperate plea for rescue from great catastrophe, a world on fire, and you're the one being saved in it. This message in a bottle is written to you. Will you read it? There's a writing trope that novelists know called Chekhov's gun. I'm going to end with this. It has to do with this bottle. Chekhov's gun says if the author tells the reader that there's a gun lying on the table in the first chapter, then that gun needs to be fired by the third chapter. Otherwise, why is it there? Why put it in if it has no use? If no one's going to shoot that gun, it doesn't belong in the scene. The writer and the reader, they enter into this kind of social contract that stipulates the gun's very presence promises that it's going to be used. And so when the Apostle Paul makes claims about Scripture and he says, all Scripture can make you wise, this, you, can make you wise concerning salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The believers might be completely equipped for every good work. He's laying something supremely useful on the table, And he is telling us your characters in this story. This book is a reliable guide for life and faith. It's an infallible map. And that is a strong statement to make. And it must be put to work. It can't just lie on the table because what sense would that make? It's like the unspoken agreement we entered into when I first showed you this bottle. Right? Because you're all wondering what it says, aren't you? You're kind of curious. Kind of dying to know, some of you? Why? Well, because you feel in this moment in a very real way that you are connected to the words that are written on this piece of paper. Don't you? That this, you're invested in this now. You're invested in the story. You're somehow, in a way you can't explain, you weren't there, you didn't find it, but me showing it to you, you're now connected to this message in the bottle. Of course you are. These words are of interest to you. They matter to you. And the good news is, I can tell you what this message says. I don't even need to open the bottle. I can tell you what it says, and the reason is because I have the words that are written on this piece of paper memorized, and I've had them memorized for a long time. Nothing is stopping me from telling you what's written on this message. And so I ask you, what possible sense would it make if after all this, I just didn't? Pray with me. (laughs) Father, your word is not only living and active, it is within our arm's reach. It is ours to take and read 
And when people have done this down through time, you have used your word to cause people to know you, to enter into a relationship with you that is not just a relationship now, but an eternal relationship. Do that for us. Give us a hunger to read your scripture, to know what the message says, to study it, to memorize it, to yield to it, and to live according to it by heart. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.